grab one out. Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll be today. We've been in a series from Matthew 5, and we're going to be starting in verse 43. So as we turn there, let me just pray for our time together. Father, thank you so much for giving us your Son, Jesus Christ, telling us about, us about Him through your Word. And I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to fill our hearts and our spiritual eyes, to open them up, that we might behold Him, and we might behold the glorious mission you've given us to love our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's the word of the Lord. Ranker.com is a website that I went on this past week that makes lists of all kinds of things. And one list that they made was of the all-time worst people in history. They described it this way. This is their description of these characters. The absolute worst people in history, ranked by the wisdom of the crowd. Who are the worst people in history? This list includes mass-murdering dictators, psychopathic serial killers, sociopathic religious leaders, insane politicians, deceptive political commentators, and those who make our eyes and ears bleed. Who are the worst people of all time? This human scum has incited genocide, executed ethnic cleansing, enslaved entire races of people, practiced cannibalism, orchestrated arbitrary homicide, brainwashed people who trusted them, yelled at film crew members, and been paid by TV studios to be awful. And this list contains many names that we have an immediate negative reaction to. Names like Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Fidel Castro, or maybe even more local names like Kermit Gosnell, who was committed or was convicted for murdering babies post-delivery. You see, these people, when we name their names and we describe what they did, immediately our heart starts feeling a negative reaction. So what's your own personal list? What's your own America's most wanted of your heart? Whether we're consciously doing it or subconsciously doing it, we all are pulling certain individuals into our circle of enemy and some other individuals into our circle of love. We're saying, you're in, you're out. You were in, but because you did that, you're out. So what's motivating how we're dividing these people up, how we're making these lists, even if it's subconsciously? What's driving our decisions? Well, Cicero was the political genius of Rome, and he was infamous for the way he chose to extend love to people. Here's what he said. This has lasted thousands of years, so I'm sure 
if he knew it's lasted this long, he'd be pretty embarrassed at this point. But he said, kindness must not be shown to a youth, nor to an old man, not to the aged, because he is likely to die before he can have an occasion to repay you the benefit, and not to the young man, for he is sure to forget it. Cicero had a totally self-absorbed mentality in who he would love. He'd only love people in the prime of their life who had the biggest potential opportunity to pay him back for the love he bestowed on them. And though hopefully none of us would go on paper to say that, and thousands of years later, hopefully we don't read your statement that sounds like that, I think we can all say that sometimes that sense, that mentality can seep into the way we interact with others. Think about it. Think about the last time you were wronged by somebody. How did you react? How do you currently think about them? How do you talk about them? How do you pray for them? Are your prayers, thoughts, words marked by anger, bitterness, self-righteousness? Or are they marked by love? And though like gravity, our tendency is to pull us down to hating our enemies, Jesus has a better way for us here in this, in this passage. He tells us this, it's our main point today. The character of our Father compels us to love our enemies. The character of our Father compels us to love our enemies. So Jesus is looking into our hearts today and he's saying, how do you treat your enemies? What's driving the way that you interact with them? What, what will cause you to love them? What will cause you to hate them? And he is saying to us, the character of our Father compels us to love our enemies. And in this section of Scripture, this series of Matthew, Jesus has been telling his disciples about what it looks like to be a kingdom follower, right? We've heard this throughout this series. And he's been telling them, we have to reach an impossibly high standard of righteousness. No lying, no anger, no lusting, no unlawful divorce, no retaliation. He's been saying that the righteousness that's required to be a kingdom member is beyond even the goody two-shoes of his time, the Pharisees, right? And so here he finishes this section of examples by probably the most difficult righteousness requirement. Love your enemies. Talked to Afrika right before the sermon, and she was like, I'm excited about this. I know this is such a hard, hard thing to do. And she's so right. This is an incredibly difficult task. The African theologian Augustine got this. This is what he wrote. He said, Many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. You see, even not retaliating doesn't reach the standard that Jesus holds out. The standard goes down to our heart. And so with such a lofty command, with such a high command of righteousness, we need to ask some questions of this passage to help us get our minds around it. And I've got two questions for us today if you're taking notes. Our first question is, who are our enemies? So who are our enemies? Then our second question will be, why do we have to love them? Okay, so first question, who are our enemies? In verse 43, Jesus is interacting with the same oral tradition, the common practice that he's been interacting with throughout this section. You have heard it said, 
but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. We've seen that over and over. And this particular oral tradition actually quotes Leviticus. Leviticus 19 says, you shall love your neighbor. But the problem with this oral tradition is it then goes beyond what Leviticus 19 says, and it says you must also hate your enemy. Not found in Leviticus 19. In fact, if you read the rest of that chapter, you'll find that the whole point is to love the sojourner and the foreigner in the midst of Israel. The implication is actually that you need to love even the people that aren't from Israel. And so we find that Jesus rightly, emphatically denies this oral tradition. He says, but I say to you, and in the original, that's almost like it's underlined, italicized, and bolded. It's emphasized. He's saying over against that tradition, here's what you should know. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But on the, on the, the front of it, hating your enemies makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, the word enemy means hated one. So you're telling me to love the one I hate, essentially. And Jesus says, yes, those you would naturally be inclined to hate are the very ones that I command you to love. Jesus says we need to love those who are nominally against us, who go on record to persecute you and hate you. He, he says we have to love those whose interests are bound up in our harm. We have to love our enemies. He doesn't just say we have to love our enemies. He says we should pray for our persecutors as well. And this word persecutors, Luanita says to us, it's a lexicon, it says to us it's to systematically organize a program to oppress and harass people. That's what that word meant. It was beyond just someone not liking you or just kind of saying a mean thing to you. It was somebody systematically trying to harm you. It was like Saul before he became Paul who went after the Jewish Christians, right? Tracked them down to kill them and murder them. He was persecuting them. And Jesus says to us, pray for people like that. Jesus tells us that we need to respond to those who pursue our death with a pursuit of eternal life for them. But why, right? Why must we love these people? So we have who are our enemies. There, there are enemies, there are persecutors, who are, these, who are these enemies? Well, why must we love our enemies is our second question. And our text gives us two reasons right in there. The first reason that we need to love our enemies is because our Father loves His enemies. Our Father loves His enemies. Let's look at, look at verse 45, uh, 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. And listen carefully here. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So here we see the incredibly amazing character of our Father described. How does he interact with those who are his enemies? How does he interact for, with those who chase him around and try to oppress him? He responds by lavishing them with grace and love. R.T. France summarizes this well. He says, to love those who do not love you, it's not offered as a piece of pragmatic wisdom, but as a reflection of the character of God. We don't love our enemies because it makes our lives easier, right? We don't love our enemies because it's the, 
the quickest way to the door. We love our enemies because it's who our God is. He's a lover of his enemies. Think about this father. This is the father who loves his enemies, who's long-suffering. This is the father who enjoyed pure, exquisite happiness and blessedness with the Son and the Spirit forever in eternity past, who didn't have to create anything, who wasn't beholden to us for some need for our worship, but because he was so uncontainably happy, out of the Trinity poured forth the creation. He carved the depths of the ocean. He put the stars in the sky. He put those stars into a solar system and that solar system into a galaxy. And he filled the heavens with angels roaring the sound of his praise. And you know what? He made you and me especially as the pinnacle of his creation. He set us apart as image bearers, right? This father, this generous father, made us to be in his image for his glory, to communicate with him, to love him, and to image forth who he is. But what did we do? Eve, out of all the creation, she ate the apple. Adam, a beautiful, wonderful, loving spouse, he lied. And he didn't lead. You and me, living in a comfortable world, Many of us loved for a long time. Beneficiaries of our Father's generosity, I sought the pleasure of this world in secret places, in the name of curiosity. And each one of you are made in the image of God. And friends, the Bible tells us that you have thrown that away. That's the... the, the part of the gospel that's hard to hear, that we are made as the pinnacle of creation, but we've thrown that away. You see, you don't have to be a murderer or have to be an adulterer or have to be someone that's gone to prison to be a sinner. James chapter 4 verse 4 says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, anybody who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All we have to do is take this God and worship Him for who He is. And yet, we replace the, the greatest glory, the greatest pleasure in God with these small, menial pleasures of this world for the quick fix. And in that, we move from the sphere of friendship with God to the sphere of enemy with God. We change the first class tickets for economy with $50 steak for a Big Mac. And that's a bad analogy because it's way worse than that. <laughs> right? Y'all laughing because it was bad. But the reality is we've exchanged glory for worthlessness. But the good news of the gospel is that God didn't leave us there. Who does our Father what does our Father do? He loves His enemies, doesn't He? Even though each one of us were made in His image and we turned from God and we ran away and we moved into the sphere of enemy, our Heavenly Father said to us, I will send my only Son to live that life that you should have lived, glorifying me every step of the way, and He will die 
He will be sacrificed so that you can call on his name to know me as father, to know your God as friend. And so I have to pause. If you have not realized that you are an enemy of God and that you need salvation through Jesus Christ right now, you can move from enemy to friend. You can move from a son of destruction to a son of the heavenly father. So call on Jesus' name. He's died, he's risen, and he will come again, and you can receive the good news of salvation even now. Amen? Now, if you trusted in Christ, you have been moved from that sphere of enemy, the sphere of friendship. And the reason for that is because our Father loves his enemies. But the amazing thing is that our Father also continues to love those who will never call on his name the just and the unjust. Remember that from the text? The good and the evil. He still sends the rains, doesn't he? They fall on all parts of Drexel Hill, Upper Darby, Lansdowne, everybody. He still grows the crops. He still protects the houses. He still causes the electricity to flow, right? I was just down the shore a couple weeks ago with my family, and in Cape May, we have this tradition where we go to this beach called Sunset Beach. Anybody ever been there? Sunset Beach? Go there sometime if you haven't. Because on the East Coast, it's kind of rare. You can actually see the sunset on the water. Because the bay, Delaware Bay is so big at that point that you can't see the other side. And I remember just being there recently and thinking, wow. So I saw the oranges and the pinks and the, the reflection off the water and the dolphins jumping. I was like, this is crazy. My father has given this to me and my family. But if you take a step back, there were hundreds of people on that shoreline. So many I could barely see the water without someone being in the way. And not all of them were believing in Jesus. Some of them were on a mission to attack God. Some of them refused to exist that God is real. Some of them were persecuting and tracking down believers once they got back from vacation. And yet, our long-suffering God extends a beautiful sunrise, sunset to them. So how ought we to live as sons? Should we treat our enemies as they've treated us? Should we give them a little taste of their own medicine? We can burp it, right? No. We should image forth our Father's character and how we interact with those who are our personal enemies. Now, don't get this backwards when you first read this text and you read, so that you can become sons of your Father who is in heaven. It can feel a little bit like, so I got to be saved by loving my neighbor, loving my enemy. The reality is, if we look through this whole section on the Sermon on the Mount, over and over and over again, Jesus is not giving us the means by which we become Christians. He's giving us the standard by which we should live as Christians. In fact, it's so high, it's impossible to keep, right? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The reality is, these should drive us on our knees before Jesus, crying out for help, and give us a pattern by which we should pursue following our God. You see, um, Plummer once said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. We can't do it without the grace-enabling power of God. D.A. Carson said this well. He said, the point of the passage is not to state the means of becoming sons, but the necessity of pursuing a certain kind of sonship 
patterned after our Father's character. It's not how we become sons, it's how we live out our sonship by loving our enemies. So how can we be thinking about how we should be living as sons of a father who's long-suffering without thinking about the son, Jesus Christ, who lived this verse out? Think about it. Jesus engaged with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the high council. What did they do? The second he claimed to be God, they didn't waste a minute. From that day forward, they plotted and they schemed to trap him in his words. And when they couldn't trap him in his words, what did they do? They conjured false testimony and they, foaming at the mouth, spat at him and called him a blasphemer. And they handed him over to the soldiers. And the soldiers pressed a crown of thorns into his brown, mocking him as a fake king of the Jews. And the mobs shouted out, crucify him, give us Barabbas the criminal. And meanwhile, Jesus is just the subject of all of this. He's the object of all of this. What was his response? How did he respond? He could have judged them. He could have, like he did to the fig tree, pointed to it and just shriveled them up. He could have, with his blazing eyes of revelation, burned them up in the moment. He could have called down a legion of angels to lead a crusade against them. But Jesus lived his words. But I say to you, love your neighbor and pray for your enemy so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. John Stott says this, Jesus seemed to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense suggests that he kept praying. He kept, he kept repeating his entreaty, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Think of that as the Sadducees and Pharisees plotted, Father, forgive them. As he was spat upon, Father, forgive them. As he was shouted at by the crowds, Father, forgive them. As the thorns went in, Father, forgive them. With each step towards the cross, Father, with each nail-pierced hand that he wrenched upon to get a breath to say, Father, forgive them. Jesus, persecutors. Jesus prayed for you and me. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? I hope you receive that as a holy, a holy correction from the Lord. If, that's, if, that, if you haven't been living that, I felt that this week. So I read that. You see, John Stott also said, our, our enemy is seeking our harm. We must seek his good. For this is how God has treated us. It is while we were enemies that Christ died for us to reconcile us to God. If he gave himself for his enemies, well, we must give ourselves for ours. And so we find ourselves arriving to this place where, where we, we want to love our enemies. We want God to be able to do this in, in us. And so we need to be able to think about who are our enemies. 
It's kind of a weird thing to ask you. But I want you to identify people in your life. Maybe you wouldn't say they're the Joseph Stalins of this world. But it's hard for you to think about them without negative comments coming out of your mouth or negative feelings about them rising out of your heart. Who are those people? Identify them. Do you know why? Because if you don't intentionally pursue love for them, what are you naturally going to do? You're going to hate them. They're the hated ones. Gravity pulls us back to that. Our sin pulls us back. So how can we evaluate how we've been loving our enemies? Well, we can think about our words. What have your conversations looked like about those that you might count as your enemy? What have your prayers looked like? Have you prayed ever for your enemies? God calls us to do that. Now, I want to pause before I continue to just clarify something that Tim said last week. He, he did a great job of telling us that even though God calls us not to retaliate for personal offenses, that we should stand for justice, right? There's a criminal offense. We should report it and pursue the courts, right, that God's given us. And the same is true for this. Our Heavenly Father is also just, isn't He? Right? So for us to stand for justice is also imaging forth His character. But the truth is we can do both. We can even bring charges against someone and love them and pray for them and reach out to them, can't we? This commandment is going down to our heart's level, going down to our spiritual walk with God's level. So friends... How you loving your enemies? Consider your words. You may be right now feeling a huge weight on your shoulders. I read Charles Spurgeon's comment on this this week, and it helped me feel freedom from that. So may this be the same effect on you. He said, if I were called to address an ordinary company of men and women upon feats of valor, I might speak with bated breath if I exhorted them to heroism in war. But if I had lived some thousands of years ago, and had been called upon to talk to Spartan warriors, all equipped for battle, men engraved and scored with the scars of conflict. I should set no bounds to my exhortations. I would bestir them as a lion arouses the young lions and urges them to the prey. I should tell them that their name and parentage should not be disgraced by the idea of defeat but that they must expect victory and seize it as their right. And friends, you may not look at yourself in the mirror and see yourself as a heroic warrior as you wage this battle of love. You may only see failures and vindictiveness in your heart, but the truth is you have been equipped for war. You are no ordinary person. Romans 8 tells us that you are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. You, even in your weakness, have a direct access to your heavenly Father whose patience never ends, whose steadfast love never ceases. You have been made warriors of love for God. You have, that's who you are by God's grace, amen? You should have faith right now. Your name is a son of God. Your parentage is the heavenly Father and your name and parentage should not be disgraced by the idea of defeat. That is thinking humanly. That is looking at the weakness of your own arms and legs. But when you look at the mightiness of God, your faith 
fills. Your sails swell, and you go forth on mission, not to crush people, but to love people. Amen? So what does it look like to love? What does it look like to love? Well, it doesn't always look like liking. Just to clarify that for a second. We can't always control how we feel about something, can we? Somebody just gets on your nerves. Something is directly against you, and you're like, that makes me really angry for a second there, or upset. We can't always, we can't always control liking, but we can, by God's grace, control loving. Loving is choosing to act for the good of someone else, no matter what they do to you. Even when you don't like what they do, you choose to love. For me, it's played out in the classroom all the time. I don't have to like you, but I have to love you, brother. So come alongside, ask for grace, and I say, okay, extend yourself. Pray for help to change the inside. Step out in faith to love. That's what it looks like to love. It also looks like a powerful testimony for the gospel. Loving your enemy gives credibility to your gospel witness. You see, if we don't love our enemies, if we're vindictive, if we're vengeful, how are people going to believe that we've got good news? They're going to think all we're living for is this world. But if we're able to be wronged, we're able to be around people that are tough to love and love them anyways, that's a sign of miraculous grace. And it means that something's going on there that I want to get in on. Amen? So it affects our witness. And it was lived out by Dr. Martin Luther King. He lived this verse, and he loved this verse. He preached it every year through the peak years of his ministry. He was the subject or the object of all kinds of, of persecution, wasn't he? People were giving him actual death threats and ultimately ending in his death. And he has some sage advice for us on how we could love our enemies. So listen to his words. He said once, there will come a time in many instances when the person who hates you most, the person who misuses you most, the person who's gossiped about you the most, the person who's spread false rumors about you the most, there will come a time when you will have an opportunity to defeat that person. It might be in terms of a recommendation for a job. It might be in terms of helping that person to make some move in life. That's the time you must do it. That's the meaning of love. Opportunity to harm, opportunity to withhold grace, you must give it. In the final analysis, love is not this sentimental something we talk about. It's not merely an emotional something. Love is creative, understanding goodwill for all men. It is the refusal to defeat any individual. And when you rise to the level of love, of its great beauty and power, you seek only to defeat evil systems. Individuals who happen to be caught up in that system, you love, but you seek to defeat the system. And he did that, didn't he? Subject of all kinds of things, fighting against Jim Crow and segregation and all horrible, even systematic things. He looked at people that hated him, and he lived out that command. And that's the kind of love that changes the world. That's the kind of love that we are to have, brothers and sisters. And I can't even think about this passage without looking about another passage in Genesis 50, the story of Joseph and his brothers. 
Remember Joseph? He was sold into slavery by his brothers because they were jealous of him. He ends up in Egypt, and through various acts of prosperity, he rises to second in command. And because he was able to foresee a famine, all the world is dependent on Egypt. And so back come the sniveling, straggling brothers who sold him in the first place. And Joseph is there, and he can get back at them. He could just give them a slow, painful, tortuous death. He could kill them from generations, wipe out their lines. Listen to what he says. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Joseph's brothers and their children and their children's children walked away from that day with an incredible example of what it looks like to be loved as their heavenly Father loves. They were prepared for the grace of God in the future by that moment. And brothers and sisters, God's given you those opportunities too. It's coming. You need to pray for it. You need to pray for the grace to give love to those that are hard to give it to. Maybe it's over something as trivial as social media. How can you love those who are hard to love? Maybe it's at your workplace or in your neighborhood or, sadly, in your marriage. Maybe there's been a war going on in your marriage for a long time and now it just feels like your enemy. You have an amazing opportunity now. Though you could bring offenses from years build up. Hear the call of your father. Love your enemy. But loving our enemies, why should we do it? Because our heavenly father does to his enemies. That's not the only reason in our text. Quickly, there's another one. We should also love our enemies because our father will reward us for doing it says it right there. Let's read 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You see, implicit in those words is that if we love our enemies, there's a great reward for us. Our Father sees Every time that you love in hard places, every time you love your enemy, it is accounted for, it is put into a heavenly realm where a crown of life is being fashioned for you, where one day your father will rejoice over you and sing over you. Amen. This is good news. We're saved by grace, we're made sons by God's grace. We live by his grace, and then he gives us rewards. That's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? Not just that we're saved. He sees every moment. Every moment of your life matters, friends. We're not just waiting for heaven. It does. Every moment matters, and every moment that you choose to love, your enemies will be rewarded. So that, why do we love our enemies? We love them because our Father does and because he sees every single time and will reward us. Each and every act of love, rewarded. 
So what I want to do as we close is I want to do something a little atypical. I want to apply the text today and take a time of prayer. I want us to pray for three things in particular. The first thing is if you have been corrected by God's grace today and just felt, I haven't been loving my enemies, I believe God will call you to first repent of that and experience the forgiveness of God afresh. The second thing is that you would pray for your enemies by name. And again, they don't have to be the Adolf Hitlers of this world. Maybe it's irrational that they're your enemy or you're, you're their enemy. Still pray for them, okay? We're going to apply that text. It tells us to do that. And then the last thing is we're going to pray for perseverance. Perseverance to love those that are difficult to love. So if, the, if any one of those categories particularly speaks to you, start there. We're going to break into groups of three or four now to do that. Let's not have any conversations or small talk now. Let's preserve what the Spirit of God is doing right now and just act on this right now. So let's find a few people in your midst. I'll call us back together after that, um, and let's pray.